And so the big insight for us is that through social media, and especially since we have mobile phones, we're getting all of this geolocated data uh, where people are expressing their interests, basically giving a journal of their life. And we're capturing and categorizing all that data and using it to help cities uh, and retailers find the right spots in cities. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast where I interview people that are doing really amazing things in the field of geospatial. Today I'll be talking to Leiden Faust about geosocial data, how it's collected and what you can do with it. I hope you enjoy the show. Today on the show I've got Leiden Faust and he's going to talk to us about geosocial data. Hi, Leiden. How's it going, Daniel? Good, thanks. Hey, maybe before we jump into this uh, extremely interesting subject of geosocial data, which I almost know nothing about, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, yeah. Um, I think in the geospace, I uh, I started originally with uh, Lord of the Rings. So, Daniel, you re- have you read Lord of the Rings? Yeah, yeah, I have several times. Oh, okay. Um, so do you remember the maps? In Lord of the Rings in the beginning? Yeah, sure do. Yeah, that totally fascinated me. And um, from there, I really got into SimCity as a, as a kid, SimCity 2000. Um, but uh, kind of grew up, went to school, and where my background was in mainly was ethnography. So my job was to study cultures of areas for a period of time. And it was mainly market research, wasn't real deep, uh, it was for consumer brands, trying to figure out what types of products they want or what type of communication would work. Okay, so someone who's working with geosocial is a data that's got some sort of uh, location attached to it. You don't have the real strong background in, in geography or cartography or geoscience? No, I would say it's more in the social sciences is uh, yeah. where I get my start. Uh, maybe we could just dive into it. You could tell us a little bit about what is geosocial data. Sure, I'll give you the uh, I'll give you the spiel. So um, we started because we saw that companies and cities, in particular, were making critical decisions using mainly census-generated demographic data, and they were missing out on all the attitudes and the mindsets of communities in making their decision. And so the big insight for us is that through social media, and especially since we have mobile phones, we're getting all of this geolocated data uh, where people are expressing their interests, basically giving a journal of their life. And we're capturing and categorizing all that data and using it to help cities uh, and retailers find the right spots in cities. And, and how are you doing that? Obviously through social networks, but I mean, I don't, you're not scraping pages or anything. How are you capturing this data? So we'll uh, either have paid partnerships with these companies like Twitter or they have open APIs. And essentially what we're doing is capturing all the geodata and then categorizing conversations uh, using a machine clustering algorithm where we essentially allow the machine to do unsupervised learning and con- like connect common 
themes, and then we'll go ahead and label those themes. So what it looks like for people that are using this is you can see an index of how many people are talking about nightlife in this area or active moms or romantic type stuff. Okay, so you're categorizing the data, which sounds like a difficult job. It, I, I could imagine categorizing unstructured data in this way would, would be tough, but using machine learning for that, so you've got a fair bit of muscle behind there. Is this something that's happening on local servers or is it happening, where is the machine learning taking place? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, we build it on local servers, um, but all of, uh, all of our work happens in the cloud, all the way from the data coming in to the data going out to clients. So this, um, when we talked about this recently, um, just so lucky uh, with the confluence of technology that has come out. One for you know the GPUs that, are, that we use to process the data, and two, all of this cloud infrastructure makes this possible. So what really wasn't even possible even a couple of years ago to do what we're doing. And how many categories of data do you end up with? You know, we can split it anyway. So we can even split it a thousand different ways uh, if we wanted to. But our our probably our most usable um, is we break it down to about a hundred different um, types of conversation happening on social media. And then there's a there's another piece of this in that you know quite a few categories are not really meaningful or useful to retailers. So. Yeah, I could I could imagine you get to quickly get to a point where it would almost be too fine that maybe you couldn't really trust it. Right, and then you can I mean, you can even test that in predictive models, right? So if you can break it down to a thousand different parts and then run that against a predictive model to see what's best for sales forecasting, it's not going to work as well as if you have a broader category. So that kind of drives how many categories we have too. What's the most effective in in actual use? Yeah, I guess if you can't tie it back to something that you've got, you know some sort of existing data in order to enrich it either, I mean that that must be a bit of a, a um, something you think about. Yeah, I think um, one thing that has really helped us is, you know, when you're taking all this social information, um, some people will look at that and say, oh, these, that's my grandson uses social media. That's not valuable to me. And, and when you're categorizing and indexing things like active moms or romantic type behavior, that's, I mean, you could argue that's subjective. Um, so it's really helpful is when you place these into predictive models and then you can see the bottom line impact that if you place your store next to um, deal seeker type activity and conversations, there is a bottom line lift on revenue. And that's when these things get really meaningful is when you're quantifying what people have considered in the past these unquantifiable, quantifiable emotional things. I guess the really important thing here to stress is that you're only really interested in data that has a location attached to it. Is that correct? Yep, you got it. In a pre-interview talk there, you talked about there were some areas that didn't you didn't see a lot of activity, not a lot of sort of geolocated data. What, what kind of areas would they be? Oh yeah, so uh, on cornfields, <laughs> there's not a lot, of, not a lot of people I'm talking on social media in cornfields. And there's, um, I mean, we we generally because people analyze it on block group, we generally share our data by block group. Um, and anywhere where there's people, we'll generally have enough data to be able to means make some sort of meaningful um, decision 
but it's kind of, um, you know, retailers aren't trying to make and cities aren't trying to make huge decisions in areas where they're mainly rural and there's no people out there. No, that's true. But I'm thinking in terms of people do have strong feelings about something like a national park, for example. There may be not a lot of people out there sort of geotagging their texts or, or tweets and saying, hey, you know, protect the national park. But people do have a, a strong, you know, connection to these places and they do mean something for people. So I could imagine that even though your data collection there is quite sparse, that it's still an area where, you know, people could get quite concerned with if there was development going to happen there. You know, uh, we have one category that's outdoor challenges, and then we have another category that is, um, it's like essentially people taking pictures and photography of nature. So we actually do have a fair amount of especially national park data. And what's interesting is typically this is most valuable off a half mile radius um, in predictiveness, but those two in particular um that's really valuable to analyze off a three mile radius because you want to locate near, but obviously not in the national parks. Yeah. Yeah. Also has a correlation with how much beer people drink. <laughs> All right. <laughs> interesting. You must, what's the most interesting thing you found by looking at this data or, or do you guys just sort of, you know, package it up and send it off? Do you do any analysis yourselves? Um, we package it up and send it off, but I mean, obviously we're talking with the, the retailers. Uh, let me think of some interesting ones. I think a lot of them are like, a lot of them are like, yeah, they're, they're obvious, but it's interesting to see them quantified. So, uh, people that talk about books a lot. So areas that, um, are indexed high for our bookish category, um, tend to have degrees in humanities and um, tend to be well-educated. So that's like one of those obvious ones, but it's really cool to see quantified. Um, I think the one of the most interesting ones, and this is public, so we did this with Payless and we did a report case study, is Payless was looking at um, two locations. One location was killing it. The other location was a total dog. It did not do well. They're the exact same on demographics, traffic data, their traditional data sets that they use. Uh, but yeah, one location is doing well, one did terribly. So, you know, what's the difference between those locations? We found that um, the one location that did really well had a high index of active moms, which demographically are a certain, certain level. Um, they tend to be deal seekers. And the other location had a high index of urban fashion, they're very similar demographically to active moms, but if they have any money, they're going to spend it on a pair of Jordans because that's culturally important for them. And it's like, it's those kinds of insights that you realize you can't treat all communities as the same. They are really unique. That's really interesting. I'm sure it provides some really interesting analysis to, for people. Like anytime, um, doing this kind of work, you can put on another layer of data. It must be interesting. It must be attractive for people to understand more. Yeah, absolutely. Is there something this data couldn't be used for? Could you give me an example of like a situation where you just forget it? This is not the tool for the job. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's some companies that, uh, like gas stations, but what, what matters in gas stations are, are people driving by this? 
you know, your attitude, your personality has nothing to do with the gas station that you choose in general. So yeah, there's like, if, if there's not like an, like even a slight emotional reason why you might choose to go one place or another, um, then it's probably not nearly going to be as valuable. Yeah. That's uh, that must be really horrible for the people that spend millions and millions and millions of dollars marketing the different kinds of gas stations. I need to find out. <laughs> I need to discover it yeah. makes no difference at all. You just have to be there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just have to show up in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about marketing. Just show up. Just be there. Okay, so you're collecting a fair bit of data, I'm imagining. How many different platforms are you collecting from and what, what kind of size of data? What kind of amount of data are we talking? Yeah, so any anywhere where there's um, – Text, text data that is geolocated, which essentially means conversations, we're collecting from those platforms. So you can think of the obvious ones like you know Facebook and Twitter. Um, but the level of data coming in is we're getting about 8 billion data points or 8 billion conversations per year. Um, and that's actually on an a uprising trend. Yeah. So, well, that, that doesn't surprise me that people are using social media more. It maybe surprises me a little bit that people are geotagging things more. Yeah, I think uh, the value too in geotagging is um, you geotag for a purpose. It's one of those things like you have to you know, click the button to say, I want to geotag this generally. So I think it, it makes it even more meaningful because someone's trying to express a behavior or something that's true about themselves in an area. Yeah, at this point and at this time, this is important for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're collecting a, a lot of data and you're using... Um, what we would call in the GIS world or remote sensing world, an unsupervised classification. So machine learning, where you're just saying, show me all the bits that fit into these 100 different categories, 150 different categories, whatever you've got there. Is this just for the US or are you doing this on a global scale? Um, It's just for the US right now, but we're collecting data on a global scale, except for China and North Korea. We don't have any data there. but yeah, we just haven't really launched uh, outside of the U.S. right now, and we're still a startup. But we do have plans for it. Okay, what well, what's kind of holding you back in in terms of that? Um, all of our customers are in the U.S., so as soon as we have a that says, um, "Hey, can we uh, can we turn this on for London?" Yeah, we can totally do that because we have all the raw information. We just have to categorize and index it. Okay, I'm sitting in Denmark here. This sounds like a great idea. I need to find out where I'm going to put my whatever. And I hear about you. This is this is a great idea. What? How are you going to send this data to me? Man, super simple. It's just a CSV um, and whatever. Like if you're using block groups or blocks to do the analysis, we can just send it that way because all of our data is organized by latitude and longitude when it comes in. Okay, so you would aggregate these categories. So does that mean that each each block would have the dominant category or how would that work? Uh, we send every single one of our hundred categories across and there's just an index. So we, we give it on percentiles uh, based on that nation. So ours obviously is United States. And if people are talking about this um, 40% higher than average, then it's going to be at the 90th percentile. So it comes across like that. What amount of value can people expect? Does it depend on the on the situation, on the problem they're trying to solve, on the analysis they're doing, or can you see across the board 
hey, if you use this in your analysis, you will increase the likelihood of getting the correct answer by X percent. Sure. I mean, I can give you a range here. Um, we've seen on average people reduce their error by 25 percent um, in their models, which that's big, especially it's over a big scale. And I mean, what's what excites me about that is that's saying people's attitude mindsets really make a difference. Now, that 25 percent, you might already have a really uh, impressive predictive model. So it's not really increasing the percent a ton. Um, I can give you an example too of when we didn't really, and that actually goes back to your other question, when we didn't really move the needle um, quite as much as I thought we would. So some companies like grocery store companies will have ridiculous loyalty data, like incredible loyalty data. And um, if you're already capturing that much of your you know, community that makes the decisions, um, this won't bump the, the model near as much. So we've seen that happen before when the customer data is already spectacular. I mean, in other words, if your predictive model, if you can predict what you're going to make at a location within 99.5%, I, you wouldn't expect nearly as high as a lift on your model from our data. But that is a real rarity. I guess it depends on the size of your project hey, and the size of your investment. If you're talking about tearing down the main street and putting a road through it, like you want to be as close to getting the right answer as possible. And if you can lift it, you know, by 1%, 2% and it doesn't, you know, because I'm thinking some of these models don't cost a great deal to run. They cost maybe more time and energy mm. in that respect. But I mean, if you're talking about an investment of billions and billions of dollars, then, you know, I think it'd be a good thing to do. You wanted to get it right. Yeah. And right now, um, when you're talking about like building a road through somewhere, you can quantify the traffic data. You can quantify um, like the, the economic benefit of getting someone from point A to B. But what you can't quantify is how a community is going to react. And that's really unfortunate because there's lots of examples building a road through a community that just crushes that community economically because you just built it through their cultural center. Um, and people aren't, people aren't really considering that because you can't quantify and put it into a model. And I think that's where spatial really helps give people a voice. How long has your business been going? How long have you been collecting this kind of data? We've been around for three years. Our data goes seven years back. Okay. Can you look back in time and find some good examples where people have made huge blunders, maybe? You know what I mean? If we go back to the idea of the roads, that's something most people can relate to. Okay, we're going to bulldoze the main street here, and we're going to increase the road size and really you know, rip this town in half. Can you go back in your data, or would this be a possibility? I can see what it was like before, what people's attitudes, what the categories looked like before and after. Yeah, um, that's what our our city and mobility partners like Ford are using this data for. So they will toggle the time and look back on emblematic cities. Uh, and they use it for the, the positive things too. Like what, um, like where, where do you put investment in a city that has the best effect on the city and that reverberates the most, you know, your 80 for your 20. Um, some of that is, is uh, subjective too it's um it's that that kind of urban design is 
not as much of a hard science, um, but it's super useful to be able to see the culture change based on what you do in a city. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the really interesting things about your data is that change over time that you could see. I'm, take, I'm imagining it would take some work to process that amount of data to see that, to visualize it. But that, I think that'd be incredibly interesting, especially when you got down to the, the block level. Yeah. And I think uh, cities are moving faster than they ever have. So it, it, it is getting really interesting to watch cities change. Do you have any more really good examples of what people are using this for? I think we've done the road thing to death now. And obviously site selection for, you know, if I'm going to place a, a petrol station here or build some kind of restaurant here, I, I can definitely see that. But is there any sort of less obvious examples you, you've seen your, your work used for? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the what I wouldn't have expected is consumer packaged good companies. So like if you're selling diapers or if you're selling soaps, that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't expect them to find as much value in there, but they're it's still like, do you, do you supply an area with the expensive diapers or do you put the cheap ones in there? Or do you put organic products in a place or do you put the, the traditional products? So that's a kind of a surprising use case um, that I've seen. Um, let me think of what else. Oh, there's also a marketing use case too. So if you know the social categories that correlate with a certain brand, you can um, intelligently, you know, use Facebook or whatever and drop ads into those areas um, for the because those types of people are already resonating with what you're doing. So I've seen that too. That, that's an interesting idea using your data. In in Facebook, it's like I'm, I'm guess you're using your data in order to get a position or find a region. Hey, it's this region here, this area here. I want to target with these Facebook ads um, because Facebook has an incredible amount of data, as I'm sure you know themselves. Yeah. But you're kind of you're kind of skimming the surface a little bit. But in, compared to what those guys are collecting in Twitter and Amazon, I mean that must be a whole different game. Yeah, I mean honestly, I haven't. Um... I haven't really made Facebook ads myself. Um, <laughs> we don't really market to an individual people, it's more companies. Um, but I, if I remember right, I think they have like really um, like non-subjective type categories that you would click where ours are obviously psychographic in nature. Would you see them as a possible threat to this, to this business model? Cause I mean, uh, we've seen Amazon sort of branch out in the past and say, okay, now we do cloud computing, for example. They, what would be stopping them from coming along and say, hey, now here's an, here's an API. Now you can drag this data out of our system for a cost, of course. I mean, they, yeah, they might make something like that for advertising. Um, so that, that could happen. Now, if, it would be very surprising to me if they got into retail site selection and they would have a bit of a problem because um, – uh, they would be biased towards only Facebook data because they couldn't use other uh, data sources. We're more of a neutral third-party analysis company. But honestly, you know, if more companies do this, I think that's really, I think it's a good thing because right now cities are being designed with uh, not nearly the data they should be. And if we can start sparking um, other companies that are considering this 
and getting cities to consider the kind of the, the social makeup as being really a serious part of the city. I think we've done our job as a company. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more with you there. I think we need to take a serious look at how we're designing cities with more and more people moving into urban areas. You know, we, need to, we need to think about making these places more livable. How are we going to do this in the future? The, the rate of development, at least here, that I can see in, in Denmark and in Europe in general, is, it's too slow. We can't keep up. We're just kind of you know, putting Band-Aids on, on the patient instead of actually coming up with a cure. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that happens because when it when it comes to some of the social and psychographic stuff is just it's too it's too hard to quantify and you can't like you can't show a, a PowerPoint that proves why you should consider the communities. Hey, where do you think that we've talked a little bit about where this is going? But uh, when I think of the future in terms of social media, in terms of location, I think these things are only going to get more important. I think they're going to be bigger and more richer sources of, of data. When you think about geosocial as a data source, what, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Well, I think you're going to see more companies um, start using geosocial, um, whether it's ours or more companies that will, that will start up using geosocial. So I, I think it'll be not just one company do it. I think it'll be an industry in the future. And I think, in, you know, beyond that, you know, the statistic is that um, 80% of the world's data is unstructured data, which means like it's images or text. And right now we're making all of our decisions on the 20% that's easy to understand, structured data. So I think you're going to see a massive amount of innovation in this, this area um, where the, the technology is caught up with the theory and the value of the data. So I think that's going to, and that's really going to change the way our cities are built. It's going to change a lot of things here in the next 10 years. Yeah. I th- do, you, do you see social media as being a big driver as of this unstructured data? I mean, we're definitely creating a lot of data when we use social media. There's no question about that. But is that going to be like the, the biggest source of this kind of data? Or do you see other sources out there that you could, you could hook up to? Um, I don't totally know. I think, uh, I think we're at the kind of the forefront of satellite imagery and computer vision. So I think that'll be, that'll be pretty big as well. But yeah, I guess I'm not totally sure what other data sources people will start using. Yeah, I'm thinking about the the Internet of Things. You know, when we all have an Alexis or Google Home or something like that, and the fridge talks to the to the whatever else. I'm thinking that kind of data as well. Yeah, so like voice data, so all the questions that people ask. That's. I mean, yeah, it'll be it'll be household data then, which is yeah, yeah, people love that. Yeah. <laughs> so whether that's searchable or not. And that brings me to another question. Now, now we've come right down to that kind of very personal level. We're in someone's home. We're collecting data in there. Maybe, maybe that's the future. So, like I said earlier, I I come from New Zealand, but I live in in Denmark, and we've had a whole bunch of privacy issues recently. It's been a really big thing in the media over here, and because of that, they've passed certain laws in Europe that have really changed the way we think about privacy and data collection in general. Is that something that you see happening in the U.S. anytime soon? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, and I think any any company that especially if they're academic research related 
um, any company that is using data coming from people, even if it's like us and you can't, we like, we can't track it down to who said what we can just track it down to what was said, where, um, I think those companies really need to work to, um, lobby or put new laws in place for privacy. I think those companies need to be involved with it because one, it's totally unfair. Um, when your privacy is invaded as a consumer and if people and and companies take advantage of that, that data is going away. And what scares me is in a world where we don't get to use that data to design our cities. Right. Uh, because people, you know, obviously gotten mad that their data is being used and they didn't ask it to be. So I think we need to be really, really careful that and it's, it's definitely a passion point for me to, um, and I could see it going either way. I mean, I could see a world where the data goes dark and we don't use any of that information. And I could see a world where, um, our privacy is like 1984 totally invaded and that's not good either. There's something in between that seems very right. You talked a little bit about before about lobbyists and people need to need to you know get a hold of these lawmakers and explain and and show up and say hey we're doing this and be maybe more open about what they're doing and how they're doing it. Is there any, any other make? Because I, I see this as being a really big problem in the future. You know, like we said before, we're creating more and more of this data, and it's actually really interesting talking to someone like you who wants to you know to use a cliche to to use it for good instead of evil. You know, most of the people I think about using this data. Uh, uh, a really interested in taking advantage of someone. How can I, you know, get in front of someone, get their attention for cheaper? And you're talking about doing something good with it. You're talking about using this as a source. You know, I'm going to use this as a way of doing good and changing the cities and making better decisions. But do you see any other real danger around here? Because if it did go dark, you're right. We 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 stand to lose a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the danger that I was talking about. I could really see either way. I, there's one thing that. Uh, I find really interesting. I'd point you to, so there's a guy named Alex Pentland. I don't know if you heard of him, but he's a uh, part of MIT media lab. He's got the social physics lab and um, he's doing a lot of work around um, data privatization while also retaining non- and I don't know how you say this anonymity of users um, so that the data still can be collected, can be used for good. Um, but is uh, is definitely more safe, and you know what's being shared about you. That, that's kind of what you're doing already, isn't it? You're aggregating it to to such a level, and I'm not 100 percent sure what a a block is for you in terms of you know area. But I'm thinking just the fact that you're aggregating it out. I mean, you'll know information about that area, but it's not that detailed. You know, you're not down. Okay, this is Mrs. Jones kind of detail. Yeah, I mean, what it looks like from our side is. We can never see that, you know, Daniel said this. What it looked like is this bot group, and then here's all the conversations that have been had in this bot group. And then they're, again, categorized. So there's another level of abstraction to where they're usable. Is there any other major data source you use to enrich this data or you see your data being used with? Uh, yeah, I'll just go through uh, a couple of them. Don't have the list up right now. It'd be good if I did. Um, but yeah, so we use demographic data. Sometimes we'll put this up against like Yelp data to see um, how expensive the the restaurants are, for example, in the area as an indicator of wealth or using wealth. 
Um, education uh, is another thing that we're always interested in. Um, age, education, ethnicity, gender, household occupancy, income, urbanicity, religion, um, voting is another one that we're, uh, we're doing now. So any kind of like hard data to put this up against is always really interesting. And the, uh, the correlations always make a whole lot of sense. Hey, well, I know we're running out of time here. You've probably got a million things to do. We're recording this just before Christmas. So I, yeah, I can imagine that you're very busy right at the moment. But before you go, I just want to say thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this interview with me. I really appreciate it. Is there somewhere we can go to learn more about what you're up to and sort of follow along? Yeah, so you can go to spatial.ai, um, S-P-A-T-I-A-L dot A-I. Awesome. Thanks so much. Cool. It's good talking, Daniel. That's the end of another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, full transcripts of these podcasts are available at mapscaping.com. And if you're interested in reaching out to us, you can do so on Mapscaping, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Talk to you soon. Bye.